Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Talking Sense. Today's episode takes a look at an advisor's perspective on later life and vulnerable clients and is taken from our recent later life advice event. It features Colin Tomlinson, compliance auditor at Sense Network, and alongside him discussing their experiences, Seb Elwell of Switchfoot Wealth and Tim Cotton of Upper Street Financial Planning. To see the accompanying footage that goes alongside this podcast, or if you'd like to find out more on how Sense Network can help your IFA business grow, go to sense-network.co.uk. For now, though, on with the podcast. Good morning. My name's Colin Tomlinson, Compliance Auditor at Sense Network. Um, purpose of today's session is to speak with several advisors who are active in the later life space to give an advisor perspective on uh, advising those types of clients. In particular, what motivated them to advise in this area, um, any particular challenges they've faced in advising later life and vulnerable clients, uh, and what further did per personal and professional development they've undertaken to help them advise in this area. These interviews were pre-recorded. Um, I'd like to extend my thanks to Seb Elwell of Switchfoot Wealth and uh, Tim Cotton of Upper Street Financial Planning for their participation in these and also their insights into, into what, what processes they operate. Okay, uh, so we've got a couple of learning objectives to support the, um, the session today. Uh, first one of which is to discuss uh, later life best practice with practicing advisors and uh, to outline their approaches uh, to dealing with potentially vulnerable clients, given in particular there's no one way of dealing with vulnerable clients. Um, okay. uh, as I say, these sessions are pre-recorded, so if you have any questions, don't hesitate to get in touch with me, either the emails there or alternatively the sense office number. Thank you. I'm talking today to Sebastian Elwell, Director at Switchfoot Wealth Limited in Farnham. Um, so um, thanks for taking the time to speak to me today, Sebastian. Um, I suppose with this being the later life events, probably the best question to start with is what you personally define as later life advice, because it will vary depending on the types of clients you tend to deal with. Sure, I take quite a, a holistic description of later life it's, it's if you're looking at that planning timeline perhaps on buoyant or something like that it's pretty much anything that is over on the right hand quarter um, so it, it will encompass everything from inheritance tax planning you know retirement income um, of the obvious sort of care scenarios maybe downsizing your home um, but it could also cover off uh, sort of things that you might not think of. So pensions, for example, for grandchildren, pensions for babies. So actually, I probably wrote more pensions via my later life clients than I did for my younger ones because, you know, I, I have one client who has, I think, five grandchildren and, and goodness knows how many great-grandchildren now, and they wanted to gift £2,880 out of their surplus income into each of their grandchildren's pension plans. Um, so that's sort of the, the intergenerational planning element of it. Uh, and I guess it can also start quite a lot earlier if you're looking at that timeline. You might have somebody in their 60s who's thinking about inheritance tax planning, but in the back of their mind, they're thinking, do I have enough money? That what if mm -hmm. I need care? And the ability to talk to younger clients from a very knowledgeable situation about later life um, and, and actually, let's just talk through that scenario and what would happen and how would we deal with it can give them the confidence to move forwards uh, where otherwise they might say, actually, I'm just going to sit on this money that I don't really need for another 10 years, by which time the, the clock is starting to run down. We all know inheritance tax plan is cheaper if you start earlier. Um, or, uh, and I think this is an important one for people who uh, are thinking about where they want to live. 
you know they they have their dream house and when you first ask the question are you you know what's the oh, we're going to move into this beautiful property and it's going to be everything that we wanted and we're going to stay there and we're going to die there and we're going to live there for our entire lives and actually you say well is it going to be suitable you know what what happens if it's a bit inappropriate and you can't get care in there or you you know it's not got really wide doors and getting people to think about well actually would there be an extra downsize or what would be a suitable later life property is something that people need to think about a lot earlier than they tend to yes absolutely is that something you encourage i mean you talk there about sort of potentially downsizing is that something you tend to encourage in the conversation quite early on because as you get older it gets more challenging doesn't it potentially to downsize as well yeah, and it's not necessarily downsizing. It's it's moving to something that is more appropriate, you know, because yeah. I think too many houses are, you know, how many, they're built for developers. You know, they're not built for people with mobility issues. You know, so so you still want a nice big entertaining space. You still want to have your friends over, have that open plan kitchen diner. You just don't need five bedrooms attached to it, and you don't need three acres of land. Yeah. You know, so so thinking about, well, when do we move to something that is appropriate? Um, and the big problem there is that we just don't build those sorts of appropriate accommodation in the country. Yeah, yeah, they do. They probably come at a premium, don't they? Like Steve McCarthy and Stone and what yeah. I mean. So, yeah. Um, so how did you come to be involved in this area of planning? Uh, I took on a client bank now... Uh, it was 2010, so 10 years ago, right. and the average age of the clients were about 68. Um, oh, right. okay. So yeah. we roll forwards, and uh, the need for later life specials, my guess, has always been there. Um, it's always been a great comfort to the clients that they know that I can deal with it. Um, but probably okay. in the last few years, we're starting to see more and more cases where actually I'm having to deal with it. You know, what we said in theory, we're now having to put into practice. Yeah, Microsoft. Okay. And what sort of further do I know you've done quite a lot of sort of professional and personal development to help you advise in this space. Can you give us sort of a background of what sort of things you've done and um, how, how they helped you really? Yeah, so I guess the first one was sort of oh, way back in 2008, I did the CF8, which allows you to advise on um, care annuities and ER1 for equity release. I don't advise on equity release, but it's important to know about it. Uh, and then more recently, I did the STEP Diploma in Advising Vulnerable Clients uh, and SOLA, the SOLA accreditation. Okay. And what drove you to take those? Um, it was just kind of natural interest for my clients. So it was um, one of our core values uh, in Switchfoot is lifelong learning. So it, it never stops. You've always got to be doing something. Um, and uh, that one was just of interest, relevant to my clients, um, relevant to what I was trying to do um, in building professional connections. Um, so I just went for it. It was sort of like the nat natural next step. And what was involved in the, uh, the STEP diploma? Uh, so the STEP diploma... Um, they have two levels, so you can go in with a, a certificate, which is the you can get a certificate in financial planning. Um, I didn't do that. I submitted um, I submitted experience and qualifications and went straight in at the uh, full step membership level. 
Uh, did you need your solar accreditation for that, did you? No, the solar accreditation came uh, afterwards, actually. It oh, was okay. when I'd yeah, done yeah. the step diploma, yeah. I looked at the, color, the solar syllabus and went, yeah, I can go with that. Um, yeah. So the, the step diploma was sort of, um, it, it, it's not mapped to QCF levels, but it is roughly equivalent of another QCF level six um, in and of its own right. And it, it's a very different style of learning because although they say, well, in that they, they say it's multidisciplinary, it's very legal. So you are sitting legal exams and you have to memorize lots and lots of cases to back up your arguments. And, um, you know, with, with PFS exams, you can count on some calculations, you know, as long as you get the maths right, you've got a good chance of hitting that exam. But step, there's not so much in the way of calculations. It's just, um, wordy and and reliance on memory for lots and lots of cases which i struggled with until i found a good memory technique now oh, good excellent yeah and how has that knowledge helped you you think um, sort of practically how it ha- actually helped you the main sort of business development or is it around yeah so so business development i mean first of all you, you're sat in a classroom and there's going to be one or two other financial advisors at the most and a room full of solicitors all studying the right. same thing. So from professional connection point of view, it's excellent. Uh, it's their exam. You're talking their language. It, it's a qualification that they respect um, and, and know because uh, they haven't had to go through our qualifications. Um, if they did, I think they'd probably respect them quite a lot more, but they haven't had to. But they yeah. are going through step. They understand it. And so you're, you're you're in the same boat. So it's very good from just understanding where they're coming from um, and building connections uh, and, and aids with working holistically with the solicitors to look after clients. Yeah. Why do you think, um, I mean, you mentioned there was only sort of two financial planners involved in the course. Why do you think that might be the case? Pass. <laughs> no, fair enough. Pass. I, I guess it's. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I. It is, is a different last, skill like a set. Or, yeah. Yeah, it is a different skill set. It, it it does zap quite a lot of your time. Right. Okay. Are you do? Are you glad you did it though? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Very much so. Very much so. But okay. I'm I'm glad I don't have to do it again. I can imagine. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, how do you, uh, you have your own vulnerable client policy, which understands sort of a condition of having your solar accreditation? How how do you use that with clients? Um, so it's it, it, when I say it's my own, it's the slightly adaptive version of the sense vulnerable client policy, which I think is very good. Uh, the main difference is I talk about it in my initial disclosure documents. Oh, okay. So yeah. I I highlight it up front with absolutely every client whether we think they're vulnerable or not uh, and that's really important to have that conversation for, for a number of reasons one you don't know whether somebody is vulnerable or not um, so I use the example uh, a couple of examples I guess vulnerability is a spectrum isn't it and, mm. and there's as many yeah. different vulnerabilities as there are clients um, so a couple of examples uh, I had a client who was a, an IT professional, and in fact, he was IT security and protecting nuclear power plants from cyber attacks. Right, okay. yeah. um, you know, not somebody you'd think of as a vulnerable client, but we had a meeting, and in that meeting, he just wasn't able to concentrate. And, and after a bit of 
asking questions. He was on some uh, medication. He was suffering from vertigo as a result. And, and he wasn't able to focus on what we were talking about. Let's, why didn't we just rebook this meeting? Oh, I didn't want to put you out. And it's like, well, you're not putting us out, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, so giving people the permission to adapt your services, accommodate. Um, another really, really simple one. Uh, I've got a client who's colorblind. And for years, I would give him charts without even thinking about it, all in reds and browns. And he couldn't see the difference between the lines. Now, it's such a simple thing when you realize just to, on FE analytics, if you're producing a chart, just to change the color of those lines. So vulnerability covers everything from, you know, big, permanent, ongoing dementia, you know, um, big issues like that through to temporary vulnerability, divorce, you know, life events, divorce, um, bereavement. Uh, through to things that could be very, very minor and very, very easy to solve, but are nonetheless very annoying for the client if you don't bother to solve them. So just having that conversation with everyone allows, I suppose it allows better customer service because it allows, gives the permission client to tell you, well, how, how do we need to change our service slightly to make it better for them? I've also found it a pretty good way of getting leads. Um, but, so it, even if a client isn't vulnerable, you're talking about the policy, you say why it's important, and the client instantly starts to think of people that they know that are in that situation. It might be their parents okay. or, you know, they're the attorneys for, and they think, oh, actually, this would be a good advisor for them. And that can open up that conversation um, very naturally without sort of having to to push the issues and very, yeah. very, very common. Um, I guess we're Have dealing with, the... sorry. No, I was going to say, I guess we're often dealing with a sandwich generation, aren't we? With, with people who have got both parents um, and they might be the attorneys for them and children that they're trying to get into college and, and behave. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you had any sort of challenges during COVID around advising later life clients ever get in front of them or being able to advise them in a timely manner or anything like that? So, Yeah, it's been difficult. Um, yeah. Many have really stepped up to the plate and yes. engaged with video conferencing. And I guess that's been very, very useful to have that sort of cultural shift forced upon them if you like, they would never have engaged with video conferencing before. Yes. And now they do. And, uh, and and we created some guides for our clients on how to use it, ones that we could print out and post uh, so that if it was the first time they were joining a meeting, they could see what to expect. Uh, and one of them even ended up getting so confident on it, they reformed their bridge group um, ah, brilliant. on Zoom. Yeah. Um, so that was quite nice. But there are some that just haven't been able to cope with it. Yeah, um, it's almost and, like a pastoral we, service, isn't it? You're providing there, really, for some clients. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, but there, there are some that it is just being really difficult because we, we cannot go and see them. Right. You know, they're, they're in the shielding category, and uh, and they can't cope with technology, and they can't hear very well on the phone, and it's just, you know, you, you end up falling back on what delay delay hoping things will come around then you think no we're going to have to end up doing a desk-based review and that's not ideal yeah, yeah. i could do with probably a copy of that video conferencing guide if i can um yeah. Yeah, I'll stop a conversation okay um 
So I understand you're also involved in the Transparency Task Force. Um, I'd be interested to find out what that is and, and uh, why you feel it's up needed. Yeah, so the Transparency Task Force is a group of people that work in financial services across all sort of uh, all aspects of financial services. Mm. You care very much about the industry, but also recognise that it's not highly trusted by the public. In fact, research shows that financial services are the least trusted of all the major industries, despite being the only one that relies entirely on trust for its entire existence. Um, and so they think about, well, what can we do to uh, to improve the trustworthiness of the financial services industry? They've got a whole load of different projects going, uh, and I was involved in their anti-scams special interest group, which sort of focused on pension scams. Uh, and in particular, I'm now leading an, an initiative with them around lasting powers of attorney uh, and pensions. So in 2015, Pensions Freedom came along and all of a sudden you can drain your entire pension pot um, in one fell swoop if you really want to. Uh, but there wasn't a commensurate step up in the level of protectiveness around lasting powers of attorney. So lasting powers of attorney are largely unsupervised um, unless you've gone to the effort of writing specific supervision clauses in there. In theory, the OPG uh, has a mandate to investigate, but lack of transparency, how can they investigate if they're not aware and if nobody can see what's going on? Um, so my fear is, if you imagine a cohort of people aged 65 going into drawdown in 2015, well, cognitive impairment is going to be pretty rare at 65 to 70. But if we roll on five years, 10 years, uh, or or further, then statistically it's going to become more and more common and there'll be more and more people potentially in drawdown contracts, which is providing highly accessible wealth uh, with vulnerabilities, with no kind of supervision on that. And, you know, at, at society level, that's, that's likely to be quite dangerous. It's almost like a fire yes. triangle, isn't it? If you combine vulnerability, accessible wealth, lack of transparency, what do we think is going to happen on a fairly large scale or, or large enough um, to be problematic for, for, for the financial services reputation um, and devastating for individuals? You know, at least with an annuity, somebody can steal your income, but you put a stop to that, you've still got an income. You know, whereas in a drawdown, you've, you've made the incentive larger because you can go after the entire capital part. Um, and you've made the consequences worse. So we're collecting together a group of individuals to think about, well, what, um, you know, what do we need to do to change uh, the LPA regime and the pensions regime um, to sort of head off that risk before it becomes too large scale? Yeah. Okay, good stuff. And uh, in terms of your sort of later life um, processes, how do you look to bring other professionals into the advice process? Uh, I, I guess at every opportunity. Um, yeah. I suppose the obvious one is sort of solicitors, isn't it? Is that something you tend to? Yeah. So, um, so being, I think, being very picky and choosy about the solicitors that you use. Yes. Um, we've got a huge advantage as financial planners in that we know our clients really well and we 
see them every single year or often a lot more frequently than that. Whereas for solicitors, the, the nature of their work can be far more transactional and they might go years mm. without seeing their clients. Um, so using that ability where, where we highlight needs and then making a positive referral to the right solicitor that you've vetted and chosen. Um, so a classic one might be LPAs. You know, we have a tick box on our fact find that says, do you have an LPA? Yes. Um, asking a few extra questions, do you have an LPA? Does it have appropriate supervision and safeguarding clauses in it? No. Well, then we're going to make a referral to have that reviewed by a solicitor that we know is competent and qualified in that specific area to deal with that. Yeah. Um, and that can help build, if you like, referral currency. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay, and how do you how do you perceive other professions treat later life clients differently to perhaps financial planning? Yeah, so I I, I have noticed a difference uh, in vulnerable client procedures in financial services compared to legal from a sort of compliance point of view. So uh, in step, they talk very much about make sure you see the client on their own. You know, whereas you what be the reason for that? Um, make sure that you are getting the client's true views yeah. you know so if you're taking the instruction for a will or, or a power of attorney is it, it, it it's making sure that the client is expressing their views rather than the views of somebody that is uh, having some sort of undue influence over them or even coercive control yeah so i guess it's it's a, it's slightly nuanced but the focus is very much on Make very, very good case notes. That's the same with us. Um, but make sure you see the client on their own, whereas our focus tends to be make sure the client, there is a third party there with the client. Um, mm. and, and that's not to say that don't see them on their own, but it's sort of the, the focus is slightly different. Um, and I guess the perception might be that the, the uh, the risk of harm, if you like, the the solicitors, regulators are thinking the risk of harm is coming from somebody exercising undue influence over over the client, and it's not likely to be the solicitor. Um, same risk of harm in financial services, but the regulator might be thinking, is it the financial advisor that's exerting undue influence here and doing what they want to do? Um, and I guess that's a, a a legacy of some of the stuff that's happened in the past in mm. our industries and not by us, but, um, you know, by some of our more sales orientated, uh, Very possibly yeah. in the past. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Excellent. No, it's really appreciated. Thank you, Sam, today. So thank you, Colin. Pleasure. Okay, so uh, I'm talking today to uh, Tim Cotton, Director at uh, Upper Street Financial Planning in Dorset. Uh, thank you for your time today, Tim. Um, okay. So I suppose uh, my first question, um, bearing in mind this is relating to our later life events, is what 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 would you define as sort of a later life client? Uh, well, I don't have a strict definition for later mm. life client, but I guess that uh, in most cases, uh, what we're really talking about is um, people who require advice around paying for care fees, uh, and that might be at home or in a residential setting. Uh, but I think elements of the advice that you give to that sort of market also apply to quite a lot of clients. Uh, so uh, certainly this is what I've found uh, as, I've, as I've done it, that, that the, the, the stuff you 
uh, learn and uh, start employing in your work is transferable to lots of other cases. Uh, so my definition of later life now is probably quite a lot wider than simply um, uh, people who actually need care right now. Uh, and certainly in a lot of work with my retired clients, uh, there's, there's uh, an aspect of thinking about what they will need in future. Um, one of the things I've found really is that when people require care uh, and they start to make financial decisions, uh, often it can be made in, in a, uh, at a point of crisis uh, because people tend right. not to think about this until the last minute. So they're, they're making decisions when... Um, uh, they, they may have their options might be limited. Uh, they might not be prepared for it. Uh, so my later life advice, in a way, now is starting much earlier with clients uh, and, and getting them to think about and start preparing for something that may happen in five years' time uh, or may never happen. Um, so, at what point would you start to think about that conversation with a client? Uh, well, I, th I think that uh, it's important to think about probably. Um, I mean, if I was going to put an age to it, I think we're talking about in the mid-70s. Um, right. But it could be earlier. Uh, I think the sorts of times when you're thinking about that is, is uh, obviously when they're retiring, um, it's, it's good to have a, a, a sort of idea about um, what might happen in future. But certainly by the time they've been retired for a while, and they might have, have not spent as much capital as they thought they were going to, and they've got excess savings. Uh, and you start thinking about inheritance tax. You're having conversations about, you know, effectively, how much can I afford to give away? And as soon as you have that conversation, you've got to start thinking about, well, actually, how much do I need to keep back? Uh, so, yeah, I would say that uh, around about 75 would be not, yep. you know, sort of mid-70s figures is not uh, not a bad time to be thinking about it. And how did you sort of come to be involved in this type of area? Uh, well, to be honest, it was a, sort of one of those sort of business decisions, to be honest. Yeah. We, we, I was working was in my older job when I was employed by another company, uh, and we were looking at that sort of market as a way to get uh, uh, more work and also to uh, make connections with solicitors. Uh, so it was a kind of business decision uh, at that time. But having got more into it, um, I realized, uh, first of all, uh, that... Uh, it, it has a lot of application just for my clients. It's, it's, I realized that it was hard for me to be a really effective uh, retirement advisor if I wasn't thinking about what might be happening in 10 or 15 years. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, good stuff. And what um, further development have you um, done across the years to help you uh, to specialize in this area? Uh, well, I started off by doing the uh, solar accreditation. Uh, so right. that was about six years ago. Uh, so that involves um, uh, a, 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 an accreditation process. Um, uh, but And prior to that, uh, you, to, in order to get accredited, you have to have uh, the equity release exams and you have to have the yes. long-term care exams. So I'd taken those a few years uh, uh, before that. Uh, and then since uh, being accredited, there's, there's a need to sort of maintain your um, knowledge. Uh, and there's a re-accreditation process every five years. And it's quite an involved um, process in terms of both knowledge and the way you um, uh, deal with people and the processes mm. you have set up within your firm uh, to, to, to make sure that you're um, taking care of vulnerable people properly. Yes. Uh, so that kind of thing is an ongoing uh, process. Uh, there's always new things coming out. And 
uh, I, I'm sort of uh, always always finding out more, really. Uh, so there are a number of services that you can use which provide information. Um, uh, there, there, are, there are things like um, Carebox Online, uh, which is a very good source of reference material yeah. Yeah. And, and such such things like that. Yeah, excellent. Okay, and how has that sort of knowledge helped you um, with your clients? Oh, it's, it's been absolutely invaluable. I mean, yeah. it's the whole area is until you start finding out what actually happens uh, around social care and how uh, decisions are made and who has to pay for what and what's available. Yeah. It's, it's in, I had no idea how in-depth it is. Uh, it's, uh, it's so complex, and I really don't understand how uh, ordinary people who haven't got that learning can have a hope of negotiating their way around mm. the system. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, it's, it's been invaluable picking up that knowledge for me. Ah, fantastic. Um, for you, for you, what are the sort of hallmarks of vulnerability that you might have noticed in in, um, in clients, and, and how do you, do you generally look to respond to those hallmarks? Oh, my goodness. So, you know, I used to think vulnerable was about whether you have yeah. mental capacity or not. Uh, and uh, I, I actually started using the uh, FCA matrix of vulnerability uh, last year for all my clients. Yes. And I was just amazed at how many people are vulnerable, potentially vulnerable, when you start applying that sort of matrix to it. And you know, even to the ex you know extent that I was talking to a new client last last week who uh, is um, uh, I think he's about he's early sixties. He's a sculptor. He's really you know he's very wealthy. He's very switched on guy. Uh, but I realised during my assessment that he he has he has potential vulnerabilities. Um, right, okay. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, so how did um, did you have to adapt what you did for that client in that circumstance there at all? You mentioned he's got potential vulnerabilities. Yeah, well, uh, I think it's. Um, I, so in that case, uh, it's not so much that he um, can't understand what I'm what we're discussing, yes. or has difficulty making. Well, potentially he might have a difficulty making a decision. Uh, a rational decision. He might be swung by emotions. So I right, have okay. to, um, I have to then pitch my advice to make sure that he he's, um, um, you know, that, that he's 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 coming at it from a rational point of view. Quite often, uh, I'd be able to include other family members, but in this case, it's not appropriate. So I just have to be alive to that. So the fact that you can't in, include sort of family members at this point in time, uh, how would you sort of look to help that client with sort of decision making? Uh, well, I think that um, if you had to, uh, I, I, I take the view that you, you've got to be alive to the to the potential there. So we're not talking about yeah. someone who's actually vulnerable. We're talking about who's, someone who's potentially vulnerable. Yep. I take the view that you have to be alive to the, the risk that he might make a bad decision. I therefore have to double up on my efforts to make sure he, he, he's going to be making the right decision. And if I feel that there's any any sort of risk to him, then uh, I guess I would be seeking maybe some other professional help, maybe his solicitor or something like that. Yeah. Can you think of a time where a client wasn't uh, following what you were saying and how did you respond to that? Um, I don't think there's been too many times that that's happened. No. Um, I think one way or another, you can you can generally you know uh, 
uh, you, you know, if it's the right decision, I think France will see it in the end. Yes. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. Okay. And do you, do you find, from your perspective, there's there's benefits to being involved in this space? Reputationally well, or professionally? Or? Uh, yeah. Well, I think um, if, I, if I was being brutally honest, uh, in terms of the profitability of new business, I think that it's, it's, a, it's um, probably not one of the most lucrative areas that you could be involved. Right. Because the... Um, the amount of work that's involved uh, is potentially, you know, much larger than a normal case. Things take much longer. Yeah. Having said that, uh, I also think that it's in, it's absolutely necessary to keep hold of your uh, your client bank uh, as they get older and as they look to maybe transfer assets to the next generation. Yes. Yeah. So you could describe it as a more of a defensive move. This, apart from, on top of that, obviously, the, the satisfaction of just knowing that you're doing the best job you can. Absolutely, yeah, that's quite an important point, isn't it? And how do you look to bring, I mean, you mentioned there earlier, bringing potentially solicitors into the process. Um, how do you look to bring other professionals into uh, the advice process if required? Does um, it quite early on, or do you tend to, uh, to wait until you're ready to present your recommendations? Or? Well, it depends what it is. I mean, uh, I've had a case recently, uh, well, on a couple of occasions, but one very recently where uh, one of the first things they needed to work out is what sort of care does the client need? Um, right. And if you're a self-funder, although the local authority has a responsibility to help you find that care, uh, invariably they kind of figure that you're on your own, you need to sort it out yourself. So what I have found extremely useful is actually uh, referring my clients to care consultants. And care consultants are private uh, organisations, usually people who've had a lot of experience in social services, uh, who will um, basically help them to draw up a care plan, uh, identify whether they're going to be uh, able to use domiciliary care or help them find a residential care place. And I think links with that sort of organisation are absolutely vital. Um, obviously, yeah. there's going to be um, aspects where solicitors are involved. Uh, quite often, my clients will already have solicitors uh, in place, so we'll, we'll sort of liaise with them. Oh, excellent. Okay. And you mentioned there you use the FCA's matrix of vulnerability to, to assess clients. Um, is that something you do on an ongoing basis as well? Is it just something you tend to do with new clients? Uh, no, I now do it for all my uh, yeah. H review. I re re go through it again and uh, just check off whether you know, right, okay. there's change. Excellent. Okay. And uh, when you were advising sort of a later life client, do you have any sort of um, approach to how you sort of manage investments? Would you uh, be looking at sort of income-led investments for a client, particularly if they're in care, or what sort of process would you follow? Uh, well, personally, uh, it's, it's, it's Judge Lush, isn't it? I think he came out with the, the sort of, um, uh, it's not exactly a ruling, but it was certainly quite quite heavy guidance uh, that anyone in their 80s, uh, especially if they're sort of needing to spend their money for care, really probably shouldn't be investing in anything other than national savings, effectively. Wow. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, I think um, I, I would kind of subscribe to that. Uh, I, I, I think in, the, an ideal, in an ideal world, what you would end up with is a, is a sort of care plan in place to take care of the fees. Uh, and either um, the, the rest of the money is sort of being given away tax efficiently for inheritance tax, or potentially it's invested on the basis that it might be going to the kids in yes. a few years' time. Uh, but if someone was, um, I, I think the, the, the number of times where I've been actually sort of recommending a relatively old person 
to put money into the stock market to pay care fees. I just, I, I, I cannot see that um, I was going to, I'd be doing that unless they just had right. so much money that it didn't really matter what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Do you think there's a risk? Um, we assume elderly clients are inherently vulnerable. Uh, well, there is. Um, there is a. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's obviously a risk that. Uh, uh, well, I, I think there is a risk of, of doing that. Uh, I mean, I think using something like the matrix helps yes. you uh, sort of get around that because uh, it's right. You know, you could have someone who's ninety. Uh, and who's not vulnerable, and you could have someone who's 75 who's very vulnerable. So I think age itself isn't uh, isn't the uh, isn't an indicator. Yeah. And how do you sort of counter that, other than using sort of the matrix? Is it just personal experience? Or... Uh, well, because it's sometimes hard to get that across, particularly on um, a suitability report or a file, isn't it? How the extent of vulnerability of a client. Yeah, well, I think uh, on that aspect, I think it's about sort of um, the detail you put into the meeting note. Mm, so yeah. ideally, you can you could be asking questions, uh, and their answers would, would quite easily indicate, I think, whether they're vulnerable or not. Certainly, be a very significant indicator. Yeah. Um, so, well, some questions we tend to ask a client to establish how the whether they're following, like you were saying, particularly a, a, an elderly client. Uh, well, there's a, there's a thought. I mean, I don't think there's a kind of sort of you obviously can't say, "Are you vulnerable?" So there's not a sort of like sort of yes. obvious question to ask. I think it's a, it's asking them about you know their lifestyles maybe uh, about their their concerns. Uh, you know, if if someone if someone starts uh, talking about you know that they're, they're worried about um, you know they don't go out much, for instance, because they're worried about uh, you know what's going to happen to them, and they don't use the computer and they don't use uh, online banking because they think they're going to get ripped off. You know, you start that, that obviously starts sort of indicating someone who 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 has difficulty. You know, maybe uh, you know maybe, maybe is indicative of vulnerabilities. Yeah. Uh, if someone is uh, 85 and sort of you know fully conversant with with modern life and 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 such like, I, I, I think then you could start thinking, well, okay, okay, if they haven't got anything else wrong with them, then maybe they're not so vulnerable. So, so I, think, I think the questions have to be tailored to the, the situation, yeah. uh, and it's not necessarily a sort of direct question. It's a more around how they're coping with life, I think. Yeah, perfect. No, that's really appreciated, Tim. Really appreciate your time talking about that, and uh, thank you. Thank you very much for your insights on that. To find out more about how Sense can help your IFA business grow, go to sense-network.co.uk.